Well, good morning slash afternoon slash evening slash middle of the night to you. Christopher can't be with us this week. He's not feeling well. And so Bill, my good friend, has agreed to jump in. And, and Christopher's a good friend too, I think. Although maybe I'll have to ask Bill about that. But I, he has agreed to, to pinch it for us. So he's, he's jumping in today. And Bill, for those of you who don't know, is pastor in Beacon, New York, Salem Tabernacle. And when did we meet, Bill, first? We met, I believe, first in 2014 uh, when you and a few others came for a Jesus Paradox conference. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Jonathan Martin and Christopher House and I and Mark Arstad was was pastoring then. And how long after that did I block you on Twitter? <laughs> so I got to know you a little bit there. And then, uh, you know, maybe about a year later, uh, ironically, after we got closer, we were <laughs> we were talking, me, you and Pastor Mark Arstad were talking on Twitter. And then all of a sudden I just got a notification. I was blocked and I was blocked for uh, about a year. And I had no idea. First of all, I didn't know people get, do they get notifications when you block them? Well, or when you just try to, try to when you're trying to, to engage. Respond. Yeah. When you try to yeah. respond in the conversation and it says you can't anymore is what, what really happened. <laughs> oh my gosh. I had I somehow accidentally or unconsciously blocked you. And, and I didn't believe you when you first brought it up, but it, and when I went to your account, sure enough, it said us that I had blocked you. So for any listeners out there who are currently blocked by me on social media, it's almost certainly not intentional, except for you, that one person, you know who I'm talking to, like I blocked you on purpose. All right, so <laughs> let's talk about these texts. I I try, we, we're using the texts that are preached on Sunday, the revised common, revised common lectionary texts. But I, as I say every week, I don't want to limit it to those who are preaching those texts, because I think this is a time for study and reflection for all of us, whoever we are, kind of wherever we are, whatever our relationship is to, to preaching. So I know you will be preaching these texts, and I'm going to start by asking you about the Jeremiah text, the Old, the old Testament reading from track one. But in your reflections, you know, don't limit yourself to what you would say in a sermon or to your thoughts about how to preach it just what do you think this passage has to say to us right here right now oh i'll i'll start there and tell everyone what the jeremiah reading is you don't have to read it all but give them the passage the citation and then and then you can jump in yeah um just real quick i want to thank everybody who listens to this podcast uh because the more that people listen the more you guys get to keep doing it and it's been a major blessing to me, to our church, to my family, to be able to hear your thoughts. You and Chris do a wonderful job. So thank you to everybody who listens to keep it going. We just uh, appreciate it. It's been a it's been a new resource and a new lifeline for us. So just want to thank everybody there. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, it's Jeremiah chapter four verses eleven to twelve, and then twenty two to twenty eight. Do you want me to read it, Chris, or do you want to just start chatting about it? You can just jump in. I mean, if there's a particular line that you want to draw attention to, oh, it, it's, that's fine. But yeah, it's just similar, it's similar to the discussion you guys had last week, where at the uh, when you read it, you know, God seems angry. Yeah, uh, he t it's, it's one of those, you know, it's it's one of those uh, moments where he tells us, "Hey, everyone, you've you've gotten good at being bad, and you're terrible at being good, <laughs> right?" And so I'm yeah. going to send a scorching wind. I'm going to turn everything upside down. You know, I'm essentially going to punish you for, for this idolatry. 
and then you know he says something beautiful at the end um that really as a individual moves me every time i hear it and he says but i will not make a full end of you mm. and that's kind of how it it finishes and so my personal feelings uh, apart from preaching or anything here is Jesus told us to pray to a father, and I think it's important to interpret these texts as a parent speaking to children. And I think it starts to calm some of the fears of the rhetoric. And I think it starts to look a little bit more meaningful for our everyday life that God is upset with us, which is part of how he loves us. It's part of the fact that he wants us to be healthy and he wants us to flourish and, you know, if you spend a few minutes with me, you know that I'm good at keeping people from flourishing. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm bad at may helping them flourish. And so, you know, the, these texts do have strong rhetoric, but I think it's important for us to know the spirit that they're, that they're spoken in. And just the last part I'll say here, and then, you know, I'm interested to hear what you say is the spirit of it really comes out in the very end when it says, I will not make a full end of you. And I, I actually sat back early this morning and thought, what does that mean? Where he says, I will not make a full end of you. And growing up, I've heard that taught as he's going to really hurt a lot of people, but then there will be a few people he doesn't hurt. Yeah, a remnant, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And that's not at all what I think he's saying. I think what Agreed. God is saying is, I will not make a full end of you. The kind of end that I will make of you is the end that turns into a beginning. Mm, yes, it's, absolutely. It's the end that refreshes. It's the end that cleans the slate. It's the end, as it says, right in Proverbs, a, a righteous person falls seven times, which is seven. It's total, total falling, but God totally gets us back up again. So it's absolutely, he makes the kind of end of the things that try to end us. That's it. I think that's it exactly. Two, two quick notes. One is to remember that these, the language in scripture of God's anger toward us needs to, we, we can't dismiss it. I mean, I think we were, many of us are, are reacting against the toxic anger we felt and that has been imposed on us. And we assume not entirely wrongly that scripture cannot mean what it seems to be saying when it speaks of God being angry in those ways. And that's true. I mean, this, as I said, it, it's, it's right that God is not toxic. God is not flying off the handle in the way that, you know, an alcoholic father might, but God's anger is diagnostic. I think one way of hearing this is a, a fundamental difference between when I'm angry when I, not every time I'm angry, but there have been times in, in my anger in which I've said things I should not have said. And I, and I turn flooded with anger. I turn to accusing those I'm speaking against. But God is never flooded with anger in that way, right? God, God does not have a, a loss of temper. God's words are always diagnostic, never accusation. He's always diagnosed when, when we read about God's anger in scripture and he says, you know, you've, you've got really good at being wicked and you've totally lost all of your skill in caring for others. Like that's not an accusation. That's not a mean spirited insult. That's diagnostic. It's telling the truth about our ways of life, the way we're living. And 
the anger is meant to show the depth of passion for us, right? So it's not coldly diagnostic. So if I go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, listen, man, you're eating up with cancer. And he says it without emotion. Like that's, a, that's not comforting, right? That, that's the truth you know, in this scenario. But it, it shows that he, he has no stake in it, right? So we have to learn to hear God's angry words toward us as diagnostic and rooted in his passion for our life, for us, for our good, which leads to your reading. And when he says, I will not make a full end, he's saying, I'll make the kind of end that brings about a new beginning, that brings you to the fullness that I wanted for you in, in the first place, right? I, I will make an end to everything that will keep you from fullness. And I think that's why right after that line that you read, read it again, the line that, that you love so much. It says, well, if, if it's okay with you, can I just jump a couple verses prior? Because I think yeah, it's, yeah. it's you, you always say recently in these podcasts to look for a clue. You like there, there's a yeah. clue that helps you. An antidote near, there, there's an antidote near the poison. Yes. Absolutely. I think it starts in verse 23. The, the verse I love is 27. 23 says, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. And to the heavens, they had no light. So now it's hearkening back to Genesis. Absolutely. chapter one. Yeah. We're back to the before the beginning. Yes. He talks about the hills. He talks about the birds. Like it's really bringing you back to the poems of Genesis one and two. And then it says, for thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. And the clue there is that he's saying that there, there's no man who's doing this right. And it's, and he's saying, I'm not going to make a full end. And so it's, it's making you have to say, who is this person that God's going to send to recreate creation in me again? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's telling you, no, hear what I'm saying in a way that lets you know that I'm not going to fully wipe you out. I'm doing something that's going to bring Genesis one back into your life. again. Absolutely. And if you, if you, if you live wickedly, you will reduce, I mean, this is, St. Athanasius, right, on the incarnation, if you live wickedly, you will undo life in yourself, right? You will tend back toward not nothingness, the chaos that was in the beginning, that when we sin against each other, we bring about more and more and more chaos, and we come closer and closer and closer to the void that's there in the beginning. But God is the God who creates from that void, yes. who creates from nothing by acting on that void. And I think that yeah, it just underscores the point that there's nothing we can do to keep God from being God to us. We we determine how God has to be God, right? By sinning against each other, we are bringing about the chaos that he has to then speak into, right? Separate the light from the dark and so on. But he always remains able. God remains able to do it. And the, the point I was going to stress is that it, the reading doesn't actually stop with the promise that I will not make a full end. He goes on to say, because of this, the earth shall mourn, the heavens grow black, for I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. Hmm. Which in, in English, you know, there's a beautiful rhyme there. But what he's telling, and, and this is another mistake I think we make, when we think of God's judgment, and scripture sometimes speaks in this way, that God relents, right? So he's He's going to bring a full end, but then he just stops short. But if you read closely here, as you're encouraging us to do, you see that he's saying, I won't bring about a full end precisely because I do not relent. 
that my justice is such that when it's enacted, it is seen to be mercy, right? So mercy is not God's justice being brought up short or kept from being itself. God's mercy is not the limit on his justice. God's mercy, God's mercy is what his justice does to us when it comes to us without limit. When God is unlimited in his justice, we recognize that is mercy. Yes. And anything less than that would be, would be unmerciful. And so I think, yeah, I, I love the connection you're making. Well, I mean, think about like how Jesus says, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like even when Jesus gets into some of his apocalyptic teachings, he'll say something like, the end will suddenly come upon them like labor pains come upon a woman. Yes. Right. So there's something about that end where that he uses the analogy of a new beginning. It's a beginning. Yeah. Right. right. So even the destruction is the kind of destruction that it can be likened unto labor pains, which is also the beginning of something new. Yep. That the beginning of sorrows is the beginning of sorrows that end in joy. Yes. That the sorrows are the laboring, but what that brings, the delivery brings about new life, brings about the miracle of creation. So I think, I think that all of that's being drawn up here uh, by Jeremiah. Do you want to say anything else about that text? Because I want to, I want to touch on at least a few others before we come to the gospel. Sure. I mean, there's, uh, I, I know we're not going to like get too deep into the Timothy text, but there's, I, I laughed because I thought, I thought of something like something you might say, where at the beginning of the Timothy text, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful. Hmm. And in light of what we're talking about here, I like the phrase, he judged me faithful, because you can yeah. look at it two ways. Yeah. You can look at it like he judged me faithful, meaning he looked at my life and he said, here's a guy who's faithful. Or you could look at it like he judged me to the point where I became Absolutely. faithful. Absolutely. Right. And God, God's not just delivering a score on Timothy's performance or Paul's right. performance, right? right? Like God is creating this faithfulness in Paul by judging him rightly. Like, again, so go back to mind, not relenting. We go through, like, so, so when we are sinning, right? And when we are, you know, living that life that brings, uh, uncreation instead of new creation like as god judges us we will sense i don't know what you want to say consequence or we will sense you know like a pruning or some type whatever analogy you want to use a crucible like we will go through the pain the growing pains of learning the growing pains of getting back up again the Mm -hmm. growing pains of learning from our mistakes right like these these things are on the table but not to make a full end of us yes to make a beginning of our end absolutely and, and that, that is what God is always doing, right? There, there's never a time or place in which God is not doing that for, you, for everyone and everything, right? That, that's just, just who it is for God to be God, is to be that one who acts in that way. And I think recognizing that, again, we can't keep God from being that God. God is that God apart from us, right? We did not make God God, and we don't determine God's godness to us. We just shape the way that it has to happen, right? He's going to judge all of us faithful. I love the way you're phrasing that, but he's going to keep judging us until faithfulness comes from it, right? He's the fire is going to burn until all that's left is gold, silver, and precious stones. But we have everything to say about how quickly that happens, how smoothly that happens, right? In, in, in that Timothy text, which for those of you who are following along, it's first Timothy one, 12 to 17, 
Paul says, I received mercy because I was acting in ignorance and unbelief. Ignorance and unbelief or ignorance of unbelief. And what he's not saying is God decided to be merciful to me because I was ignorant in my unbelief. He's saying that's how the mercy finally got to me. Right. And you said that thing about God overflowing. Like, look at what he says in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ. Mm. So yeah. God overflowed for Paul in such a way that yes. he gifted Paul the very faith Paul needed to see Jesus and his brothers and sisters the right way. Absolutely. So right. Paul didn't conjure that faith up in himself or else he'll get punished. Yep. The fieriness of God's love gave him that faith. He judged him into that faith. Absolutely. Right. And the one way of thinking about it is, is this, there's a, a river, to use the language of Jesus, there's a river of God's grace pent up in every human being. Mm. And it's walled in by all of the ways in which they've been sinned against, mostly, but also the ways in which they sin. You know, so every time we, we've been wronged or we've wronged other people, we're damming up that flow from our life. But the river's relentless. And those walls are made, not by God, but by creatures. And, and therefore, they can't withstand the, that pressure of goodness that's always there. And eventually, there's a crack in the dam. Right? And I'm, I'm trying to think now of a, of a great wordplay on what it means to be damned, right? the ways in which God saves us from damnation. Like we, we've damned up with all of our foolishness and wickedness. You know, what does Paul say about himself here? I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a man of violence. And yet all of that, all of that came out of me because I was ignorant and unbelieving. Like I had damned up this flow, but eventually the wall cracks. And once any water gets through, then it's just a matter of time, right? Before the river floods and you know, shatters the resistances. And I think that's what, what I hear in that he overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So that what, everything that is Christ's now is, is Paul's. Right. And he says that we, that that's now on display in him, which this could lead us into the gospel nicely. Like he talks about how that display, that work of God is on display in him. Like, again, growing up, yes. I've heard that we're supposed to tell the lost that the display of God's judgment is on them. Paul is literally saying the opposite. He's saying the display of God's judgment is on me. Yes. My move from, you know, unrighteous to righteous is now like, you know, reflecting off of me like a movie screen so that you can watch the story of Christ in my life. And so it's something that we're supposed to, we're supposed to turn on in us so that other people can see that not tell them that if they don't get this faith that that damnation is coming for for them we're, they're supposed to see how this judgment of god makes whole in our life As opposed, you know what i'm saying so it's like we've placed that on other people which we're about to see in the gospel text well yeah to go back to jeremiah for just a moment i mean the the line that keeps smacking me in the face is the the, the line about how good we have gotten at being evil, at being wicked. Like we've developed, we've become masterful in our oppression. We've become masterful in our manipulation. 
and our unfaithfulness to one another. And, and we've lost the skills for caring for each other. And I, I mean, I, I'm sure that obviously it describes Jeremiah's time, Jeremiah's people, but in some ways, and I'm sure in some ways it describes everybody's time and everybody's people. But gosh, it feels like that we're living in that moment, right? That I'm living in that moment in which I, I really, I have been trained and conditioned to do certain things that aren't good for me to do and aren't good for other people when I do them. And yet, even when I want to do good, I lack the skills. I don't know how to be present in the way that's actually helpful for my wife, for my kids, for my neighbors and so on. And like, I feel so many times I'm daily, I feel that kind of lack, like a desire to do good, but a lack of skill in doing it. Like that's why that line is stinging like it stings. Right. Because I, and I think it's pointing to something that's true, not just about me, but about us, right? Like we're, I haven't been trained for that, or I haven't learned the training that's been offered. And, and yet it's what's so vital, I think, about what Paul is saying. You know, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. But then he comes right back and says, I'm the chief of sinners. Right. So he's, he's not, we, we can mishear this as, as Paul saying, I received mercy, but I really wasn't that wicked. I mean, I was ignorant. Right. Right. We can hear it as an excuse. Like I was acting in those ways, but you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's just because I was unaware. Paul's point is no, no, no. That's the worst place to be in. I was ignorant about how to care for people. Right. And I was skilled in persecution and violence. And that means I was the worst of sinners. And if God can do this for me, if the dam can break in me, then it can break in anyone. And we just have to have, and this is why I think he makes the point that God had shown utmost patience, right? The patience of the river that's just pressing against those dams day after day, year after year, generation after generation, and eventually, it eventually breaks. I think what you just said is beautiful. And pastorally speaking, like I would want people to hear, like when, when we say things like, you know, the good I want to do, I can't do. And we, and we realize the dissonance between how we are living and the life of Christ and how the life of Christ lives. I think in that moment, the more we can sit in that dissonance of saying, I know I should be doing better and I can't. Yes. Every time we escape that dissonance and try to give a quick answer, we ignore the area where we're being saved. And so every time we sit in the frustration, that's the fiery judgment of God. Every time we sit in that frustration, another wave of his mercy crashes into the dam and doesn't do anything. And then it happens again. And another wave of his mercy crashes into the dam and it feels like it's not doing anything. But eventually when we're willing to sit in that dissonance, that, that dam gets worn down. Yeah. And it starts to strengthen the muscles, like where we're saying, I can't, but I want to, those muscles that are so weak in us that are causing us to have to say, I can't, as we sit in the dissonance and let that fiery judgment of God's love bring about that dissonance in us, those muscles are getting stronger every time. Absolutely. Absolutely. You find yourself not in a breakthrough, but like almost like in a becoming through. Yes. Well, all of a sudden, those muscles will be there. 
and you'll be on to another thing <laughs> that yep. you can't do that you want to do. Well, I mean, go back to your metaphor of the the woman in labor. I mean, I've I've been there three times with my wife in the room. Every time she says, I can't do this. Right. She's she's done it before. Right. I mean, with Emery, who's just turned nine, like it's time for Emery to be born. And she's still saying, I can't do this. Right. There is something about our powerlessness as human beings. We're always coming up against it. Right. We're always coming up against our limits. But remembering that the one who is at work in us, like we're capable of far more than we think we are. And God is capable of all things. And yes. he's constantly, the, the goodness, the sweetness of that pressure on us is making us capable of more than we've imagined we could be, right? And, and I think that's why Paul ends this passage that we're reading with a, a reminder about who God is, the king of the ages. Yes. Right, and which is a way of like, panning out to this massive 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 scale reminding us that you know what you're up against what you're struggling with you know fits within god's shepherding of all creation across the ages right not just what's happening in this season in your life but that god is shepherding all things at the fullest possible scale mind-blowingly large scale and that God does so as the immortal, invisible, only God, right? That that this is this God is beyond all we can um, imagine, all we could make for ourselves, and precisely so He can be trusted with all of this that we don't know how to handle, with all of this that we we cannot manage, and could and you know there are those things that we can manage and don't think we can, and then there are things we genuinely cannot manage, right? But God, the only immortal, invisible one, does so. And I think that word invisibility, one word, and then I'll let you respond to this. Invisible hits most of us as a menacing word or a, or a word that indicates a disappointment. We want God to be visible, and we're afraid of that which is invisible. Ghosts are invisible. We're, we're anxious about what we cannot see. But when scripture talks about God's invisibility, it's not simply saying, some, it's not just some banal description of God's physicality. Right? We're not talking about, you know, God is, has some kind of invisibility cloak or that God is ghostly. What we mean when we say God is invisible, it means that his work cannot be tracked, that his, that his presence cannot be isolated. That means whatever's happening in my life, right? Including inside those aches you were just talking about, the, the frustrations. Like God is inside of that act. And to me, it's invisible. All I see and feel and hear are my complaints, my fears, my angst. That's all that's there for me. And all you can see sitting with me is that. All you can hear are my complaints. But God's invisible goodness is at work on the inside of all of that. You and me as well as between us. Do you want to speak to that before we go to the gospel? Yeah, I mean, you said it, you know, better than I'll ever be able to there, but it's like, if everybody's intellectually and even emotionally honest with themselves, that's where hope has to be located. Yes. Everything, if hope is located to what we can see, we all know that the love we feel for another human comes from an invisible place. 
we all know that the hate we felt in a comment somebody made was well beyond the words that they used, like the actual sound of their voice and the words that were formulated against us. Yes. Those things are no, nowhere near compared to the invisible thing we know is happening when a hateful word is said. Yes. And so at the end of the day, we need God to be in those invisible places. That's where our hope is located. Anything else is functionalism. Anything else is legalism, moralism. He has to be where meaning is made and meaning is made or unmade in the invisible. Absolutely. Right? Which is unreachable for us. I mean, another way of talking about invisibility is, is it's connected here to immortality. Like we are people of beginnings and ends. Bonhoeffer is so good on this. Like we are people of beginnings and ends and we cannot get back behind the beginning and we cannot get out ahead of the end. Like we, we are limited. We, we, there are ways in which we are shut off from our own. I mean, think about Augustine, like the ways in which he comes to know in the confessions to know that he is not his own source is that he realizes I existed and I can't remember how I came to be. And if I keep going back, I reach a limit of my awareness of my own self. Yet there I was, I, you know, I lived not knowing I was living, not choosing to be alive, not choosing to be the person that I am. And who brought me to be right in that invisibility, right? It is this one we're, we're, we're naming as God revealed in Jesus Christ. So I think you're making exactly the right connection. Hope that is seen is not hope. We have hope because God is invisible and God's work is untrackable. It reminds me th that passage in, is it Kings or Chronicles that talks about Solomon's, when the temple was being built, there was not the sound of a hammer. Like they did all of the chiseling yeah. elsewhere, but in the temple itself, there's no, it's not the sound of the hammer. And I think the, the for me, that speaks to, and I think, I think I read this first in origin that this speaks to that invisible silent work of God, right? That God is always at work inside the temple. That is me and inside the temple. That is you, but there's no sound to it. And our kids don't hear it. And our wives don't hear it. And our parishioners sure as heck don't hear it. Um, but then suddenly the work is there. They, they didn't see it being made. And yet there it is when it's made. And I, you know, to me, this is, this is, yeah, the, the seat of our hope. And, and I, I hope people hear the spirit of all of this in the sense that like that invisible part about who God is, that is what's going to help us read these difficult texts the right way. Yeah, yeah. That, that invisible somethingness that you know is so much better than something you could ask or think. Yes. When that animates texts where God says, I'm going to send a scorching wind and it's going to be nothing but a desert. When we lean into the invisibility of him, that's when those texts can feel like a loving parent rescuing us and not an angry, abusive tyrant destroying us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when because of what sin has done to us, it's affected our perception, our perceptivity. And so we can't tell the difference between surgery and torture, hmm. right? When, when we, when God is acting on us, it feels like torture. And when God is speaking to us, it doesn't feel like diagnosis. It feels like accusation. But in fact, in truth, in reality, the scorching wind is, is purifying. It's cleansing. 
right? It, it is an act of surgery. It's an, it's an act of acting. It's an act that fulfills God's goodness toward us after God has diagnosed us as needing that care. Yeah, I just, I need everybody listening to know I am at the heart of who I am. I'm a Pentecostal. I'm an eight on the Enneagram and I'm Italian. And so as I hear <laughs> say things, as I hear him say things, it is actual torture for me to not take a lap around my house <laughs> as you're talking. So I don't want anyone to hear my silence as like, I'm just waiting to move on to the next thing. Like I'm freaking out. Like I'm sweating right now out of excitement. And, you know, so I just, that, that is torture. Is that like the meat sweats, like excitement sweats. Yeah. Like, or it's meat of the word sweats. Oh my God. I can't believe this metaphor. The meat of the word sweats. That's what, yes. that's what you have the right sweats now. I'm having right now. So like, <laughs> yes, it's, it's hard for an Italian eight Pentecostal to listen to you talk ever. <laughs> well, that's almost certainly true. Not always because we're talking about scripture, but let's, let's come to the gospel. What, what's striking you about, about this week's gospel text, which is Luke 15, one to 10. Yeah. Where do you want to start? I mean, there's so much that is yeah. unbelievable here. I mean, you could, I want well, to start. Just let's start with the grumbling. Let's start with the fact that some of the Pharisees and scribes are, are, are deeply annoyed with who Jesus listens to and who he, who he shares meals with. So let, let's start there. What do we make of the friend of sinners identification? Oh my God. So first, uh, tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying this man receives and eats with them. What really punched me in the gut this time around uh, was, is the fact that the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to hear him and even the love of God is drawing the Pharisees and the scribes to him to grumble. Mm, yes. But there's still something so powerful and attractive of his love yep. that it even causes people will draw near to eat with him. They'll draw near to ask of him. They'll draw near to grumble about him, but he's still drawing them near. And I thought, man, can you imagine if our churches were able to draw all those different kinds of people toward us. And then we respond the way he's about to respond. Yeah, absolutely. That, what that reminds me of the other night, the boys and I, uh, Clive and I, who's 14, were watching a football game together, which is one of our rituals. And Julie came up and she started watching. And then Emery came up, who's who just turned nine uh, last week. And at one point, he's, Emery is in my lap under the blanket with me because Julie keeps freezing in this house. This is not time for marital counseling. So we're, I'm watching this football game with Clive. Emery is in my lap. Like I've got my arms around him and he's trying to talk to me. Clive is talking to me about the, the game. And Emery says, dad, I just never get time with you. I just <laughs> never get time. When are we going to get to do something together? Right. And of course, like it hit me just like what you're saying here does in that I mean, he's literally wrapped up in my arms and what's coming out of him is the joy of being in that moment with us. But it's coming out as a desire for more of it. Yes. Right? Like it's, it's expressing yes. itself as a complaint because he loves what the thrill of that moment, right? That here I am with my brother whom I love and my mom is with us and my dad has me in his arms and 
I want more of this, right? Mm. And I think we we have to learn to kind of recognize that that grumble. It's almost like a you know when you're hungry and your stomach is rumbling, right? Like this grumble that comes up in them is yes, it is a sign of the ways in which they've lost the skill of caring for others, but it's a sign that they're hungry to be cared for and to care for others. Right? Like that there is that need in them and, the, and they're able to give voice to it. And I, and I think, man, what you're drawing attention to is so important, right? That the, where Jesus is present, it draws out of us what gives expression to our desire for that full end that God has, that God has promised. Yeah, and there's room, there's room in him. And I mean, now more than ever, there's room in Jesus for people who want to come eat. There's room in Jesus for people who want to disagree with him. There's space in him to be disagreed with and respond in a way that doesn't break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. Like, we desperately need a renovation in our life where there can be less wall and more room for people who want to disagree. Yes. There's zero room these days. And so what blows my mind here is like, he doesn't get derailed by the grumbling yes. and the people who are with him, they don't leave saying, wow, those other guys, they hijack the party. They leave with two parables yeah. that are life-changing because Jesus is settled when people are chilling. Mm -hmm. Jesus is settled when people are grumbling. He's yeah. not, he never loses his temperament. Yep. And so again, it speaks to the space that is in him. Like, honestly, I could get stuck there on Sunday and maybe not even get to the rest of it. Just saying the, the need for that kind of room is yeah. so great in our churches right now. Yeah. in our own hearts and in our churches yeah well come back before before we go on and we may i may want to stop here actually to your point about getting stuck there because i do think that that's the word you know i i, I shared on sunday that the plain reading of a text is always the wrong one because it's the one that just jumps up at me without any effort on my part and has no saltiness and what i love about the way you're reading Luke 15 is that you can taste the salt in it, right? It's, it's forcing us to deal with the fact that Jesus wants to draw all of these people together. Yes. Like that, depending on who we are, depending on what place we are in our lives, we might love, we might celebrate the Jesus who attracts tax collectors and sinners, but bemoan the fact that the party is always bedeviled by the Pharisees, but Putting Jesus them ruined by them. That's what we, but we think it is, but it isn't for Jesus, right? My yeah. point is we, many of us love to think about Jesus as the friend of sinners, but loathe thinking about Jesus as the friend of Pharisees. Yes. Yes. But he is absolutely just as much at home in the home of the Pharisees as he is at the table with these sinners who, whose daily work is making them impure. The, the Paul text that we said we weren't going to talk about that we've only ever talked about it's that that's the whole point he's making is I was one of those guys I was one of those Pharisees and there was room for me in him and he made me something new absolutely and and he was you know the, his life was already alive in me and I was ignorant of it I was ignorant. so let's come back to Psalm 51 for just a moment which is one of the Psalms 
can have Psalm 14 or Psalm 51. Well, I want to say something about each of them, actually. So, but let's start in Psalm 51. The And I am going to read this because I want to get to a particular line that relates to this, you know, the invisible work of God at the depth of our being, at, at what Austin Ferrer calls the causal joint between God being God and me being the creature I am, right? Mm-hmm. We can't get to that. But there is some joint deep in my heart, deep in my spirit, where God being God and me being myself touch. And I can't access it, but I don't need to access it, right? I mean, that's the, that's left in God's hands. So listen, listen in, in light of, listen to the, that in light of this text. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. In your great compassion, blot out my offenses. Wash me through and through from my wickedness and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so you are justified when you speak and upright in your judgment. Indeed, I have been wicked from my birth, a sinner from my mother's womb. For behold, you look for truth deep within me and will make me understand wisdom secretly. Purge me from my sin and I shall be pure. Wash me and I shall be clean, clean indeed. But what, I, what, I, what I'm hearing now in this text is that when God's judgment comes, it's searching for the truth that's deep within us. But it is there. It is present. There you go. That's good. Because because he is present. Mm. It's just that word. Like he has to make a crack in the wall for that to be able to make the water to be able to make its way out. One one example of this. Then I'd love to get your response. And I want to point out a line in Psalm 14. But I was talking with my brother-in-law the other day. It was Julie's dad's 75th birthday, and we were standing around talking. Don and I. And I made the point that, and I'd mentioned this at your church, that we should not say there, but for the grace of God, go I. Right. That's That's a terrible thing to say, even though I think it's giving voice to a kind of gratitude. It's framing itself as I'm grateful that God has been so good to me that I have these privileges now, this, this good fortune that others do not enjoy. But that's a way of distancing ourselves from other others and distancing God from them. But here's the thing, and this is what I said to Don, but nobody or very few people actually believe that. Even when we say, there but for the grace of God go I, if somebody were to come along right in that moment and say, wait a minute, do you really mean that you think God has been good to you in a way that God has not been good to that person? Or do you really mean that you're a better person than they are? Do you really mean that? If we start searching for the truth that's deep inside, now I may not be able to reach it, and you may not be able to reach it, but God can. The immortal one can, because he's got all the time and all the ages to get to it. But I think it's it's important that we come to these moments, moments of cultural upheaval like we're living in now, conflict in our families and around our families, in our churches, knowing that, that every human being in the deepest core of who they are exists because God is upholding them. The life of God is flickering in them because if it weren't, they wouldn't exist. They wouldn't be the person they are. And the work of the spirit is to get to that truth deep within, that that wisdom that is secretly revealed. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And then one line about Psalm 14. Yeah, I mean, so keeping, gosh, keeping it in context with 
the 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 parable here where Jesus launches into the parable of if you have 99 sheep you'll and you lose if you have 100 sheep and you lose one you'll leave the 99 and what i hear you saying and and something that i'm homiletically we will talk about on sunday is <laughs> we're all the one yes yes there are no 99 yeah or god is the 99 yes and, okay yeah either right, way and and here's the truth like you talked about the hidden truth here is the truth god made me and calls me good and has never stopped calling me good yep. there's also truth that i'm lost yes and there's also truth that he will continually and forever come to find me yep. and like it says in the parable if i refuse to go with him he will put me on his shoulders yeah. like a sheep and take me anyway yeah and that will be called repentance yes right because yeah, so, you've been brought back yeah and and i jacqueline and i we watched um lord of the rings fellowship of the ring last night and i was i was thinking about the text and i was thinking about this idea of uh you know being lost and some of the people who are in the most pain are christians who are quote unquote saved but we feel lost in ourselves. we feel lost in our church and we were talking about bilbo bilbo baggins in the fellowship of the ring he's he's back in the shire when you see him in fellowship of the rings but he's lost yes he's still he's still vexed by the ring he needs to leave again because he's trying to be found and there's nothing more horrifying than feeling lost in yourself or feeling lost in your church because most churches no one's looking for you if you're there because that was the end result yeah, yeah. And yeah. what you're saying, you've arrived, you've arrived, you've yeah. arrived. And so now surely nothing is wrong with you anymore, which is, again, not true. But right. what, you're, what you're what you're pointing out here is that in us are all of these beautiful truths, the truth that I'm still called good, the truth that I am lost, and the truth that he is going to come and find me daily. Mm. Like when you when you take all of those things together, I think at that point, Chris Brewer always says to you, so what's the good news? That's the gospel. Yeah. That I'm good, that I'm lost, and that he's coming to find me. Yeah. You know, and I just thought, like, I want Salem Tabernacle and my church here in Beacon to know we are all always the one. Mm. Right. I'm not part of the 99. That's right. No. And again, no one is. I mean, I, either way you read it, whether God is the 99 or, or not, like, there, there are no 99 in the sense that. There are some people who've just got it figured out and God is done with them and now on to us or that we're with them and God is on to others like that. Yeah. The realization is we, we are the lost sheep. So the line I want to draw attention to in Psalm 14 is just the opening line, which we, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, which, you know, I've read that. I don't know how many countless times. And what just hit me today as we're talking is it's true that the fool says that in his heart. The fool says, the fool in his heart says, there is no God. But what makes the fool the fool is that he does not know that God is in his heart. Come on. Yes. But that's what makes the fool the fool. And it's, we need to hear this line, I think, as the fool has said, there is no God in his heart, or God is not in his heart. And the realization is that inside of me all along, God, you are working. That's the wisdom. That's the secret wisdom that the other psalm is talking yes. about. And it's it's just a matter of having that epiphany, that realization that 
God, you were here all along, which is Augustine, right? Like I was looking for you outside of me, but you were within me all along. Right? That you were your the, the the river of your spirit was always pressing against the dam of the sins that had been sinned against me and my own sins that were blocking that flow. But the move from foolishness to wisdom is that recognition. And I would add, thinking that God is not in the hearts of those who are against us, that's also foolish. But that This is the, the foolishness of the Pharisees is thinking God is not in the heart, not only of Jesus, but a heart of these tax collectors, these defiled ones. And of course, that's rooted in their own arrogance, but it's also rooted in the fear that's deeper than that arrogance. Right? That right. the arrogance is protecting them from facing. We wouldn't be upset with people if we actually believed God wasn't in their heart. Like right. just the fact that like we look at them and say, your life could be so much better than this. We're, we're acknowledging that God is in their heart. Yeah. It's like, it's, there's like this dissonance between like what we know in our gut, what we know in our spirit and what the words that we use that come out of our mouth. There's so much dissonance, like, oh, that person needs God in their heart. What you're really saying is God is in that person's heart. And it's so frustrating that they don't see what's already happening. Yeah. So let, let's, we're going to have to stop, but let's stop it here. So the end of that Psalm, the last line of Psalm 14 is expecting Israel's deliverance and the the restoring of fortunes. And the very last line is Jacob will rejoice and Israel be glad. Hmm. And I think what you're describing, what we've been talking our way around this entire conversation is that all of us for now are both Jacob and Israel. Yes. Right. We're both lost and good sheep that are Simon loved. And Peter. We're, we're Simon and Peter, right. Both at once. And so when we're responding to those who've hurt us or those that we we see as dangerous, both Jacob and Israel are responding. So mm. to your point, yes, I think that the, the Jacob in us is thinking, yeah, these people are unworthy of God's grace. But the Israel in us is recognizing, no, their lives are unworthy of their identity, that they're living in ways that are that are false to who they are. And the Israel in us is speaking from compassion, even while the Jacob in us is speaking from a place of distaste and dislike and fear. I think recognizing that, that God is the one who can sort that, right, and can transform us over time, cleansing away all, all the lies. And I, I, I hope what this gives us is this the sense of confidence, confidence in the invisible goodness of God that secret wisdom that is at work on the inside of every person and including the people who seem to us furthest from our reach. And, and in, in fact, they may be furthest from our reach, but yeah. they're, they're easily within the reach of the shepherd. So I'll give you the last word, man. So, so much. I think uh, just for some reason, this is feels like such a small, small, note on that text but it feels big to me again right now in this time that we're in i like how we always hear this phrase tax collectors and sinners mm -hmm. and how they're both kind of put in the same group and so we assume we the way you were meant to read it is that tax collectors are sinners yes you know and i think there's something to be said for when we 
judge the way that God doesn't judge. Mm. Sinners, yeah. let, let's just take them both as true. So there's tax collectors and there's sinners. So the sinners are sinners. So we'll just leave that alone. Tax collectors are put into that group because I think sometimes when people act in ways that we don't like, we just immediately assume they're sinners. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so there, here's these people who are like demanding you give them your money. And so it's like, oh, they're sinners because they're doing something we don't like. And I think pastorally, Luke is pointing out here, like the, the original injustice is like, yes, they're both, both groups are sinners, but probably not in the ways that you think they are. And the tax collectors aren't sinners, probably in a way that you think, that you they, think are. they are. Yeah. Right? And so I think it's important for us to denote the idea that these Pharisees grumbling at Jesus, they might not be sinning yet. Yeah. They might be coming and in the spirit of the truth that he opens, bearing their soul. Mm -hmm. we want to label yes. them, oh, they're 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 sinning maybe they're not maybe maybe the people who are the most quiet are the ones who are sinning and the yeah. ones who are actually telling the truth about how they're feeling maybe they're already moving along maybe they're already being found by jesus in that moment mm -hmm. and so yeah. i think it's important just to always check ourselves like tax collectors and sinners am i am i labeling somebody a sinner simply because they're doing something i disagree with yeah. And I'm walking around with the idolatry thinking that everything I disagree with clearly is biblical. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know why. I just felt like no, I, I love that. And I like trusting to, as you said, not judging the judgment of God, but trusting the invisible work of God. Yeah. Trusting that God will not relent in doing justice so that his mercy, mercy can be seen. Well, thank you, Bill, for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. I hate that Brewer couldn't be here. But maybe next time you can join us again. It'll be all three of us, and you you guys can can riff together on it. I, those are your hearing. Say a prayer that that brewer starts to feel better soon. Bill, it's good to have you as a friend, man. Thank you. Thank you for the ways you love Scripture too. Love you. Love everybody who's listening, and we're praying for Brewer. I love everybody who's listening except that one person. No, I'm just I keep thinking that's me every time you say it. <laughs> that's what I'm. That's what I'm trying to affect. <laughs> I want everyone to feel that. No, I'm kidding. All right, man. Love you. Talk to you next time.